I don't know about your workplaces or the places that you go to, um, your communities, your families, your neighborhoods. But over the course of the past week, particularly after the election, um, there was a subtle sounding out in many of the communities I belong in, both uh, within university, within um, the neighborhood I live in. Were people happy or upset with the result? Did they feel fear uh, and anxiety or um, some level of hopeful optimism? Um, how were they carrying uh, the results of the election? And so uh, you could see little feelers being put out as people would kind of try to test the waters um, if it was safe to talk about or not. Because the reality is, regardless of how you voted, and I would expect in a congregation like this, we voted um, along many different lines. Um, in unpredictable and predictable ways, um, there's been tension, right? It's been one of the uh, most tense elections in terms of rhetoric. Um, all the polls suggest that increasingly America is becoming increasingly partisan. So the places where we used to meet in the middle have increasingly shrunk. So um, I've seen um, surveys of Democratic and Republican lawmakers, and they said there used to be a good group of Republicans who were actually more moderate and liberal than some of the most conservative Democrats, and that has all disappeared, and there's maybe one person left in the middle. That's been certainly true as they pulled people who belong to political parties. It's certainly been true on so many other issues. And I want to acknowledge, right, as we come together, uh, we feel those tensions. And it's particularly in that moment that it seems almost prophetic that as Dick was thinking through the sermon series um, that would come up along this time that we're looking at the undivided heart in a period of intense division. And so my goal isn't to speak directly to the issues around the election because that's not where the text goes and I'm bound by the text, but I do want to reflect on that as the context we're thinking about how God calls us to have an undivided heart. Um, because uh, scripture uh, lays on us in particular ways and I want to look at this text in the context that we find ourselves in. So let me pray for us. Um, let me invite the Spirit uh, to speak, as our brother prayed uh, so well this morning for us. Um, Holy Lord, we come before you um, as a people uh, who desire to hear your voice, who desire to embrace the teachings of your word so that the Holy Spirit's work would be unleashed among us so that Jesus Christ would be praised and you would be glorified. May this be our highest aim and surest goal today. Um, for your name's sake and for the sake of the world that needs to see that to be true. Amen. We're in um, the text in Ezekiel 11. You're familiar with it. Um, and uh, Dick preached from it last week and really tackled the first half of this passage, right? Because as he mentioned, I'm sure, the tension for the people um, living in Jerusalem and what remained of Judea was this. Clearly, we are the people God loved because he kept us near the city that he loves, near the temple that he loves. We're still here, and all the bad people got shipped away off into the margins um, in exile. And then the Lord comes in, beginning in verse 14, right? Son of man, the people of Jerusalem have said to your fellow exiles and all the other Israelites, they are far away from the Lord because they're not by the temple and not near Jerusalem. This land was given to us for our possession. And so they're thinking, we're close to God. We're the beloved of God. Here where we are, right in the center. And then God does this um, inexplicable, horrifying,
terrifying thing if you've read the scriptures and you think Jerusalem is where he lives and his glory dwells and where he's promised his people to be. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. And he seems to say, you think because you're by at the center of power, what remains of Israel, you're at the center of the temple, you are where uh, I am. I'm there, out in the margins, and I have been a temple for them, wherever they are. And um, Dick and I were chatting earlier this week, and he said part of what he wanted to remind us, right, is how frequently um, God uses the least of these to speak to us, to challenge us, to um, remind us of his deep love for them, right? It's why Jesus... Um, moves us so, I think, uh, as we read through the Gospels. I'm in the middle of the Gospel of Luke in my own daily Bible reading and uh, just came across the passage again where the temple leader came to him and said, my daughter, my 12-year-old daughter is dying and Jesus begins to walk toward him and then the woman with the hemorrhage, um, who had had that hemorrhage for 12 years, in fact, um, who'd been exiled from worship because when you're hemorrhaging, you're not going into the synagogue to worship, who had been unclean in so many ways, reaches out and touches him, and Jesus stops everything, and he says, that's the temple leader and uh, synagogue leader. I should go there, but you've been outside for 12 years. Who touched me and interacts with her, right? Um, how do we listen for those voices? And particularly in this election season, it seems clear to me, at least in reading both all the analysis afterwards, um, it was voices from the margins that spoke very loudly in this election. Um, right? I think one of the things that Donald Trump did amazingly well was speak to some of the margins in U.S. society that have not been heard well and felt heard for the first time. If you look at the way election, um, the election results happened, um, he went over people who have historically felt very powerless uh, in this situation. Rural, white America, underemployed uh, America. Um, he actually took what used to be a Democratic stronghold and turned it over. And that built part of his coalition going forward. We're hearing now post-election voices from other margins that are experiencing pain. So in college and university campuses, um, because I monitor these things for InterVarsity, um, there have been at least uh, eight to ten reported incidents of hate crimes against um, Muslim uh, students. Uh, including this morning, I got a report from the University of Michigan. A woman was approached by two men who told her, if you don't take off your hijab right now, we'll, we'll set you on fire. And so the Michigan um, campus police are investigating that. There were other acts, um, et cetera, on campus. Those marginalized voices, if you're an immigrant, if you're Latino, um, many of my friends in the black community are feeling uh, very concerned. We're hearing voices from the margins. And uh, last week, Dick said, how do we pay attention to those voices, to the pain, to the fear, to the anger? And what might God be saying to us in the midst of that? Right? That that is actually an important part of what God seems to be doing in this passage. The Lord goes on in Ezekiel, and that's where I'm going to push us today. And he says, um, I've been a sanctuary for them. Therefore, the Lord says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered. I will give you back the land of Israel again. And, and you see this great reversal, right? That in some ways he's saying... Um, you were scattered, I will bring you home, and they will return to it and remove all of its vile images and detestable idols. And um, what's fascinating to me, right, is um, this combination of 
idolatries, images, and divided hearts. When God brings back the exiles, he expects them to clean out the idols and images that have defined and have defaced Israel's worship all throughout this period that God is judging. Right? Listen to the language again. I will bring you back from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered. And I will give you back your land again. And they will return to it and remove all of its vile images and detestable idols. Um, in some ways, if you think about that language, I'm going to bring you from a foreign country into the land I promised you. And I'm going to ask you to eliminate all of the idols and the images that are there. Have you heard that language before? in our walkthroughs of scripture over the years, right? It's almost as if God is saying, look, um, the first exodus didn't finish everything. I brought you from a foreign country. I brought you into this land, and I asked you to clear out the idols and the images. And if you read through the book of Judges um, and Joshua, which I've done recently, it's clear the Israelites failed to do so. Um, they actually um, allow images and idols to remain in the land. And so it's almost like God's saying, look, I'm going to give you a do-over as a people. I'm going to bring you back, and this time, do what I ask you to do. Eliminate the idols and images in the land, and then this land, this promised land, really will be yours. I won't need to take you out of it again. And the promise that he makes to them, you see in verse 20, is the exact same promise he made to them as they were about to enter the promised land for the first time in Deuteronomy, right? Um, then they will be my people and I will be their God. And you will dwell in the land I have given you, right? That part of what he's saying is, look, I, I've sent them away, but I'm going to bring them back and we are going to have another exodus again. Why do the idols and images reflect the divided hearts of Israel? Well, we all know, right, idols and images were forbidden. Um, and if you had an idol or an image, um, a little goddess worship piece or a bull to represent Baal or a pole to represent one of the fertility gods, um, these represent direct disobedience against the Ten Commandments. They're... Um, Throughout almost the entirety of the Old Testament, God continues to say, why do you worship these things that you make with your own hands? It's ridiculous. I mean, you cut down in Jeremiah he, and Ezekiel, he talks about, you cut down the tree, you carve it, and then you bow before it. Does that make any sense at all? What are you doing? Do not do this. I am the Lord your God, the maker of heaven and earth. Do not worship any being, anything before me. Don't make an image that you're going to confuse for me. I am the Lord. I am so far beyond what you can picture, imagine, or make that you cannot reduce me to this thing. Part of the problem with idols and images, right, as they carve them, as they shape them out of clay, was that idols and images also represent what Israel really longed for. These idols represented what was in their heart, um, their deepest desires. And so... When you worship Baal, you do it by creating um, a golden calf or an ox. Why? Because you want strength. You want power. You want stability. And that's what um, this weather god might give you, right? If you worship Asherah, and you had the Asherah poles, which come up all the time as things that God detests and need to be taken down from the high places, uh, these poles were largely phallic symbols, right? Because what you were hoping for was fertility, consistency and harvest, fruitfulness um, among your animals and in your family. These idols represent the longings of the heart of this agrarian culture 
for prosperity. And that's the problem with all of our idols um, and with all of the images that we tend to worship. They actually reflect the divided nature of our hearts, which is why God says, do not bow before these bow to me only. Because when you give yourself to something and you represent it as an idol or an image that you're willing to worship, you're actually saying, yeah, there is God, but that's what I really want. And I think when you identify the idol and the image, you actually identify the actual longing of people's hearts. So let me use something that would be obvious to us from this last week's activities in the election, right? The election gives us a great sense of that. Um, each candidate crafted an image that reflects something the country longs for, which is why they attracted the votes they did, right? So if you voted for Donald Trump and the many people in the country who did, part of what they're looking for is somebody who seems strong, unbound by the need to just be polite and nice and actually says the thing that should get said. Right? Whether you like what he said or not, part of what was attractive to people who voted for him consistently was he says the thing that's on his mind. Um, who seemed unconcerned about what other countries or other places think because people feel shackled by that. Who recognizes um, some of their hopes and longings in that way. And Hillary Clinton similarly right, presented a very different image that other people strongly, that strongly represented their heart longings, right? For a lot of women, it was finally a woman. And that was important and powerful for a lot of people, right? Um, for other people, it was, she seems inclusive and welcomes everybody, and so that's the kind of America I want, um, who seems very, very aware of what our culture expects people to say to be polite and nice, right? And she was very good at doing that consistently through the election. And so depending on where you are on the spectrum, both of those candidates reflected something about the heart longing for you as a person who voted for them. Similarly, the platforms do the same. And I know for a lot of people, it really in the end is a platform issue. But if you look at the way then the candidates take that image and try to stir up support, right? Um, consistently covered by the flag in every direction. Um, con consistently um, surrounded as they can by military and ordinary people because they're people that you could grab a beer with or if you don't drink beer, then coffee or a tea or something. Um, in the end, they crafted themselves as images that reflect our heart's desires. And as you listen to the rhetoric during the campaign and afterwards, somewhat idols that if we don't quite worship, at least we should give our allegiance to. Here's the danger, and here's what God brings our attention to as he asks Israel, put aside your idols and images. The danger of idolatry and images is that we actually begin to resemble what we worship. The idols and images that fill our minds and our hearts are the things that shape us. Right? This is the concern that so many families have about, do I give a Barbie doll to my young daughter? Because that body is not actually a human body by any measure, and it sets up a particular ideal of beauty um, and activity because she never seems to have a job and only seems to enjoy leisure and beauty that many of us think who have daughters, I'm not sure. I want that to be the image that fills my daughter's mind. Um, it's the same concern that we have um, when we think about uh, the ways, <coughs> excuse me, 
I'm sorry, I think a lot about women's body issue, image issues in part because I have daughters. And I'm a brother and a son and a supervisor to women. So the Barbie doll thing comes immediately to mind. But it's the kind of images of why we encourage people not to watch pornography. Not only um, does it dishonor the marriage or the relationship that you're in, but it actually sets up a false idea of what relationships are about and how they are lived out, right? It's part of the concern about violence um, on TV and in movies and in video games because when that becomes normative, when those are the images that fill your mind, you begin to think that's actually how people relate to one another. Um, it's our concern, right, around if you were... Um, if the thing that you pursue is just financial acquisition, well, we're moving into Christmas, so um, Scrooge and the Christmas Carol demonstrate what happens. Your heart begins to shrivel. You count for people largely on how, um, as an economic equation, do they contribute toward or take away from what you have. And God says the danger of idolatry and imagery is not just that, in fact, you've disregarded your worship of me. But in fact, when you allow your heart's desires to be defined that way, you actually begin to resemble the very thing that you worship. And that's in part why God says, worship me alone. Give me your undivided heart. Because you have to make a choice between looking like a Barbie doll or looking more like Jesus. Who do you want to be? Right? If you want to make a choice between looking like a dollar bill or looking like a generous God, who do you want to be? Do you, if you want to look at what it means to actually have power and use it well, do you want it to be defined just by a G.I. Joe doll or Grand Theft Auto, or do you want it to be somebody who actually defends the um, orphan, the widow, and the poor in your midst, execute justice against those who do evil, or is it just about an assertion of power? The images that we use to fill our minds, the idols that we inadvertently worship, strongly shape who we become and so it's not just an issue of jealousy for his own glory, which would be enough. But I think it's out of a deep pastoral concern for his people that God says, don't give yourself to a fertility symbol. It will not be enough for you. You are more than that. Don't just give yourself to a fruitful harvest. You are more than just your stomach. Give yourself to me, and I invite you to begin to look Christ-like instead. And that's where then he goes, right? He says, once you clear away all of these idols and these images that distract you and shape you in wrong ways, then I will give you a heart of stone. I will take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He says, um, I will give them an undivided heart, a heart focused on me, he says, and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Right? And God uses this very odd image of <clears throat> a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. And now, because we're familiar with scripture, I think we talk about hardened hearts a lot. Right? And so we assume that the heart of stone was this hardened heart, but um, as I was doing a little research, one of um, the commentators I read said, if you lived in Israel at a time, um, part of the image of a heart of stone was more than just hardened hearts, right? People who were resistant to God, though that's certainly true and used throughout Scripture. Um, there was a culture very close to them that actually gave people stone hearts. It was the Egyptians. As you would create a mummy, you would take out many of the internal organs, the heart, and put them in canoptic jars, in part because... As um, the dead went to be judged, you didn't want to give the person who was judging the dead any additional information about whether they were good or not. Because you didn't want to, you know, 
tip your hand to it. So you took out their heart. And in, um, in the mummified body, you would put a heart of stone instead, shaped like a, 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 one of those Egyptian scarab beetles. Right? And so if you talked about a heart of stone to the people in Israel at the time and who would be familiar with mummy riots from the past, um, they would have said, oh, we know exactly what you're talking about when you talk about a heart of stone. That's what you give to dead bodies. And God says, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to give you a new spirit. Literally what God seems to be saying is, I'm going to take this dead body of yours. Corporately, Israel, you're dead to me right now. And I am going to make you alive. I'll give you a beating heart not this dead stone heart in your mummified body. I'm going to give you a new spirit so that the breath of life begins to flow through you again. You were dead, but I am going to resurrect you. You had passed into the other realm, and I will bring you back. Um, and God reverses their experience of death and exile by returning them home and by making them alive again, right? The promise of an undivided heart is not just that we're able to focus on God, though that's clear, but it's resurrection life instead. And then the New Testament begins to pick up that hope and experience, and then in Christ, what we truly believe has happened to us individually and as a corporate body, right, is that we have moved from death into life, that literally we have died with Christ and been risen with him. We have been given a new heart of flesh, and the life of the Spirit now moves through us, and that's why we begin to actually desire to do the things of God and begin to live by his decrees. Because we've entered resurrection life, and God says here in Ezekiel, I'm offering this to you now. So what does it look like then to live with this undivided heart, right? This heart that actually beats because God has brought it alive, that's filled with the Spirit as he moves us. As I was, and God says, look, you'll, you'll finally do what I command you to do. And then you think, that's a lot of commands to flip through. 600 plus of them as you think about the Pharisees. It occurred to me that Jesus summed it up so nicely for us, right? When he was asked, what does the law teach us? And when the lawyer said, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, great, you do that. You've satisfied the law. It strikes me, if we want to live with an undivided heart, it doesn't just mean to will one thing, right? To actually just be focused on God, though it is that. But it's actually reflected by doing the things that God commands us to do. And therefore, he calls us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength with an undivided heart fully and thoroughly give ourselves to him, renouncing all other allegiances, letting go of all the other chains, right? That's part of the baptism formula in so many places. At the church I attend, part of what they ask are two questions. Do you confess that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord? And do you renounce all of the works of the devil and any allegiance to him? And part of what we're called to do in this incredibly contentious season where the church has been divided largely, honestly, along ethnic lines, if you look at voting patterns, is to ask and to assert for ourselves our primary allegiances to Jesus, not to a political party or platform. Those may be necessary means to accomplish certain things, but ultimately our allegiance is to Jesus, which means both we're able to affirm the things that are true in a platform as well as have responsibility to renounce those things that are not. And that's always going to make us uncomfortable, 
before, during, and after an election, right? So in this post-election environment, part of what saying our allegiance to, is to Jesus and not to a party is if you are a Republican by conviction and um, out of integrity, you're now moving to a position where you need to do this. I will affirm the things that are good in this administration and encourage them to push further, and I will restrain the excesses of this administration as well. In the same way, if you were part and you identify with the party that lost, part of what you have to do is say, I will pray for, hope for, and call for the best out of this administration because the command to pray for those in power has not changed in the last eight years. It applied when we had, a, for those of you who vote Democratic, it applied when we had a president that we mostly approved of, and it will now apply when we have a president we do not approve of because we honor the Lord who calls us to do this. We will praise the current admin the administration to come for the things that go well, and we will hold them account to account for the things that they do not do well. Because our allegiance is to God and not to a party. Right? It would be fantastic if the church actually demonstrated that kind of independence. I will affirm what's good. I will call you to stop what is bad. And I will speak with the love, grace, and charity and prophetic force and anger, if necessary, to do these things well. And one of the reasons I think this is important is I've talked to several people, staff, uh, friends who said, you know, after the election, because of the way at least the more conservative parts of the church voted, how many of them said, I have friends and family who will no longer speak to me about faith. They've just shut down the conversation. Wouldn't it be great if we said, ah, our allegiance is to Jesus here. It's a reflection of an undivided heart, right? We don't worship at the political pole. We worship here at church. To love our neighbors ourselves in this climate then also calls for other responsibilities for us, I want to suggest. If we want to live out a living heart that follows God's decrees, and if Jesus said, look, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. I want to suggest that it means at least three things for us, or two things for us. Um, one is, the challenge for us as a congregation, as a larger Christian community, is how will we love those who voted differently than us? I was, um, I was tweeting back and forth with somebody who I've never met. I think they live in Berlin. I can't really tell. But, you know, we were talking back and forth, and I, I'd posted something about, uh, to friends, family, and colleagues. Um, and she said, you know, the challenge for me is... Um, uh, I have colleagues and friends uh, who voted differently than I did, but I don't have family, so that makes it a little easier because otherwise holidays are so awkward. And I said, I'm actually grateful that I probably do have family who voted differently than I might have, um, in part because I cannot walk away from my family, and I am predisposed to trying to love them, and I need to love them in all of the particularity and contradiction they represent to me. And if I can learn to do that, then maybe I have charity to extend to the rest of the world because it's too easy to walk away from casual friends. It's too easy to just avoid people on Facebook or Twitter. One commentator said, you know who really won in this election? It's the echo chamber that the left and right um, find themselves in. That's what we were voting on, and we seem to have affirmed it. It's why for this congregation, I'm just assuming we voted in multiple ways, our ability to say, my commitment to you extends through eternity. We may differ deeply on the way that our faith should be lived out in the society, but I am committed to you as my brother and sister in Christ. I will never walk away from you over that. 
even if we disagree viscerally with one another. And I'm committed to trying to figure out and listening and understanding who you are. What motivated you? And I hope you'll extend that charity to me and somehow we will represent together that our allegiance to Christ transcends that and that as our act of mutual discipleship, we will attempt together to forge a way to understand how those values can be held in tension, right? That that's part of what we have to do. Part of loving our neighbors ourselves is not just the people close to us in a congregation or family, I want to suggest, but I do think it means at this point, particularly for those of us um, for whom our candidate won, how do the people now more in ascendant power take care of the people uh, who feel most marginalized and defenseless? I've already described some of the hate incidents that are occurring on campus. There were, um, at the uh, Indiana State University, there were at least uh, two um, lynching um, rope noose uh, mannequins uh, put up uh, two days after the election, so people are looking into that. I mean, I, I could just go on and on. It's occurred in high schools, it's occurring um, in campuses. Again, I don't blame this necessarily on just the candidate. I think what happened was uh, forces that were already in our society are feeling a little bit more free to do things. And I'll acknowledge when you work with college students and you think about high schools, these are also people without, what they tell us about brain development is that impulse control hasn't fully formed yet by 18, and so the worst impulses are also being the least restrained. I'll fully acknowledge that. But the church has a unique opportunity right now to engage those who feel most marginalized as an act of faith, particularly churches that um, identify historically with kind of evangelical um, theological convictions. How does this play out? The day after the election, I'll use myself as an example, not because I'm so morally virtuous, you all know me better than that, but because at least this is how I'm trying to play it out right now. Um, the day after the election, um, I wrote uh, the leaders of the Muslim Student Association, National Muslim Student Association West, and two of the best known um, Muslim imams who work on college campuses. They're, they're all nationally known as well. Um, and I just wrote, uh, I wanted to reach out to you because I'm watching your Facebook feeds because I, I stalk them. Um, I've noticed that you've called emergency, you're, you're providing crisis counseling and crisis call-ins um, nearly three times a day over the next seven days in a row. It strikes me your communities feel incredible fear, incredible tension, and I've been watching some of the attacks physically on your people today. As a leader of an evangelical organization, I want you to know I see that. I reject as a Christian, but also because I care about the First Amendment anytime a religious group is targeted because of their religious beliefs. And I will speak about it, and I'll ask InterVarsity to engage it as well. Um, and actually, I started with, um, you know, the, the traditional greeting, if you talk, speak to somebody who's um, Muslim, if you're Muslim, would be, um, peace be on you. And I said, it's very hard to offer you this greeting when I realize your community feels no peace right now. And I just shot off that email. Um, the responses have been both heartbreaking and heartwarming, right? Um, what they've said is, thank you so much for even seeing or noticing. Uh, thank you for being a member of a community, which, if you pay attention to the polls, largely voted in somebody who makes us feel more afraid. We're grateful. The reason this is important to me is about two months ago, I was at a meeting um, sponsored by the Aspen Institute, and they had asked me to share a little bit, given um, religious liberty concerns, they were focusing on um, hate crimes against uh, Muslims, but also campus 
liberty more broadly, and they said, Greg, could you share what InterVarsity has done? So I went up and did my normal spiel. You know, here's ways that we tried to partner with Muslim Student Association on some religious liberty issues. Um, here are places where I've tried to do a little advocacy representing um, a Christian movement when people have been excessive in what they've said. And this man came up to me, and I won't identify him, but he's a significant leader. Um, and he walked up and he said, at, after the dinner, um, thank you for sharing what you did. I need you to know I've always hated evangelicals. Um, just hearing the word makes my stomach clench. You see, um, I escaped Iraq in 2008. And it's in part the political pressure um, of the evangelical community that caused the invasion. I lost my home and my family, um, in part because of folk like you. And I've never heard an evangelical say the things that you've said. And you forced me to rethink everything I think about your faith community, you followers of Jesus. Um, he says, I, I still don't necessarily like you. And I said, I, I appreciate why you might not. He said, but I'm at least rethinking my hatred of you. Um, this week I emailed him again and I said, you know, I don't even know if you're willing post-election, but would you be willing to break bread with me? Would, would you be willing to share a meal here in New York City? And he wrote back immediately and said, actually, um, I would be honored. Name the time and place I'm going to be there. I don't know if it's going to lead to a gospel conversation. I don't know if we'll actually mention much about the name of Jesus. But I do know by choosing to love my neighbors myself, I'm opening a small window that would not have been there. What would it look like for our congregation here to do some of the same? Uh, there's a mosque not just five or six miles south in Upper Westchester. What would it look like? Because I know those folk are feeling nervous and afraid. To get a letter from a church saying, uh, we see you, we appreciate the fear that you must be experiencing as Christians, we want you to know. Um, we do not want you to be afraid. And if there's any act of violence against your mosque, we would be there to help you. Just as an act of kindness. It's been interesting. I've, I've been seeing um, on Facebook people doing this, but it's been telling to me that they haven't signed those letters. It's been a neighbor or something else. I, I think it would be incredibly powerful to open a Muslim community's eyes to what Christians are really like to do something like that. What would it be to reach out to black or Latino communities that are feeling incredible stress right now? As, as I read media and engage in social media um, here in Upper Westchester to reach out to immigrant communities. Let me suggest it would be a powerful act of witness. It'd be a powerful act of loving our neighbors ourselves without regard, right, to not how they necessarily might respond. It would be a reflection of an undivided heart that chooses to love our neighbor as ourselves. The promise, of course, is if we do this, God says, right, as my people no longer have a divided heart that worships these odd idols and images, but instead gives themselves to me, follows my decrees by loving me and loving their neighbor as themselves, then they really will be my people and I will be their God. We will actually look more like the community that God calls us to be. And God says, the people who refuse to give up these idols and images, right, will continue to have these divided hearts. He says in verse 21 this, um, but as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. 
When we don't eliminate the idols, we bring down judgment on ourselves, onto our own heads, what we've done. Because as I said before, we become what we worship. And Paul's super clear in Romans, right? They gave themselves over to these detestable idols and images and became detestable in turn in Romans 1. That inevitably, the choice toward idolatry brings us toward our basest desires. And we begin to live that out. And God eventually says, go. Fine, if you want that, it, on your own head, make your own choices. Become the kind of people you claim you want to be. It's what, why C.S. Lewis reminds us, the door to hell is closed from the inside. Where after a lifetime we say, I do not want you, I'd rather have this. God says, great, go have it. And become what you most desire. Um, it, it's why Scrooge really is um, a prophetic story for all of us who move into a season which could be filled with consumerism, could be filled about what we get, could be filled about what we have, and maybe well worth the read, not just because it's a delightful story or fills a particular place in our Christianist imagination, but because it's fueled by a profoundly Christian insight into the nature of um, the pursuit of an idol and how that truncates and shrivels our soul. The invitation from God to us in a fractured environment where, if we're honest, our own souls are fractured with multiple desires, images, and idols that we give ourselves to. Some quite noble, our family, security, and health, and for others, less noble. Is to actually participate in the new exodus that Jesus invites us into. To leave aside the old country which we used to belong to to live more fully um, as the people of God, as people whose hearts have been changed, whose new life has been given to, to worship God alone and not all the things that will distract us and call to us, um, to love God with all that we are, to unite ourselves under his reign and his rule and his authority, to choose to love our neighbors, ourselves across differences uh, locally and to those who seem very far off the Samaritan um, um, in our midst so that when people look at us, what they would see is, I know who their God is. I know the space in which they dwell. That's who I want to become. That's where I would love to call the country to. That's who I would give my allegiance to. As you all press into living with an undivided heart. It doesn't necessarily mean feeling a little bit more pious, feeling a little bit more um, mentally consumed by worship songs 24-7, um, just being nicer people. It means being, embracing the new life God gives us with its new allegiances and new responsibilities. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, my own heart is divided with, um, if I'm honest, both petty loyalties and um, intense desires that do not reflect you. And so I pray, um, cleanse my mind, heart, and soul of those images and idols which distract me from you. Fill my imagination um, with you and you alone so that I give you my allegiance and my hope. May I love you thoroughly. May I love my neighbor as deeply as I love myself so that their flourishing is my flourishing. 
their hopes and fears become my hopes and fears. Um, and their aspirations and hope for uh, themselves are things that I share and support. And then may we do all these things to your glory. Amen.